Smalltalk is a programming language that was created at Xerox Park as a software for their vision of what personal computing would be. So Smalltalk was one of the first object-oriented programming languages, and it wasn't just a programming language, but an entire software authoring environment that was highly influential in the history of the GUI, in the history of what you see, what you get editors, as well as many of the metaphors that we use today for UI design. Yeah, and this is kind of hard to get a grasp on unless you've watch some demos or try it yourself but i guess it's akin to that steve Jobs quote about like that thing that changed his life was that when he looked at everything around him he realized that somebody had to design and make it and so if you're like those people are not that special then that means that i can change the things that are around me like it's it's kind of a similar attitude to to small talk it's extraordinarily powerful it makes you feel like you're in the system and you can touch everything that you see Hey, this is Sri. And this is Will. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. How's it going, Will? I'm doing well. This time I went back to Whole Foods and I got something called Steez. Steez, okay. <laughs> An antioxidant brew, and uh, it's peach flavored. And I just noticed that it's got tea in the middle of the name. <laughs> nice. Hence, hence it's a tea, right? Puns, puns. Steez. Cool. And any purported uh, health benefits? Uh, antioxidant, we believe, blah, 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 premium fair trade. I think it should have been called steep. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right? More clever. More clever. Yeah. I'll give that one out for free. There we go. Well, I so, I also went to, to Whole Foods and I got this alive ancient mushroom elixir. <laughs> it's got these ancient... That sounds, dis- <laughs> that sounds disgusting, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I hope it doesn't mean the mushrooms are ancient, but more that the right. the elixir concept the is ancient. Right. But we'll see. Right. We'll see. That's cool. So what are we talking about this week? Oh, we have something special for our listeners this week. Yes. Our listeners this so week. So for the first time, we are uh, doing an episode that is looking back into the past and, and looking at it from the lens of what did people in the past think about what the future of computing was? Uh, a retro future. So if you've ever seen those gleaming images in the 50s of like the sleek chrome filled towers and cars <laughs> like that's what the people in the 50s thought today or their future was going to look like and today we're going to cover the retro future yeah exactly and so a really great place to start is with talking about small talk so small talk is a programming language that was created at xerox park as a software for their vision of what personal computing would be for uh, a concept called the dynabook so Smalltalk was one of the first object-oriented programming languages, and it wasn't just a programming language, but an entire software authoring environment that was highly influential in the history of the GUI, in the history of what you see, what you get editors, as well as many of the metaphors that we use today for UI design. So it's a very, very influential project, and so I'm super excited to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, if you've done any object-oriented programming I mean, the lineage can be traced back to Smalltalk, which it has its influences as well, but those previous influences didn't have as much of an impact as uh, Smalltalk did. And we'll talk about object-oriented programming. Alan Kay, it's one of its inventors, had wanted it to be and what we ended up learning in the rest of the industry and uh, like what the diff between their vision and what the world came to be. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the interesting parts of the, our, our conversation. Yeah, so spoiler alert. 
it didn't quite pan out the way that they thought it would be, neither the Smalltalk project itself or, I might say, the entire course of personal computing did not turn out the way that they expected it would. So it's going to be super interesting which, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, which is funny because he's quoted as saying, like, the only way to predict the future is to invent it. And they invented it, but it didn't turn out the way that they thought. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. So we'll, we'll go into all of that. And yeah, so, you know, just as an overview, Smalltalk was created at the highly influential research lab Xerox Park. Uh, the name most commonly associated with Smalltalk is Alan Kay, who was its sort of designer, inventor, uh, and sort of its, its brainchild. But there were many other uh, people who were involved uh, that, that we'll uh, reference. So it was, it was obviously a big team effort, but it was Alan Kay's vision that started it all. And so I actually wanted to start there. So Alan Kay's vision for Smalltalk was that it would be a programming environment that'd be easy to use for children and, and specifically for children to use on this this futuristic tablet-like personal computer called the Dynabook. So they were trying to build a computer that was meant to be a personal dynamic medium in contrast to the computers of that era, which were mainframes and business machines. And so personal computing meant that it was an environment that could be tailored to the interests and needs of the user rather than more of a, a corporate type of machine. Yeah. And so a little bit of background here to, to pause here for a second, why he Alan Kay cared about making programming accessible and teachable to children. It, it's it's because like when he was involved in computing in the sixties, I want to say yeah, like when he like graduated school and he's like working in computers. Like at that time, like like Sri just said, the the only places that had computers were universities and like large companies, and they were all mainframes and stuff. And as he worked in it more, he came to understand that if Moore's law was true then these things were going to get faster and faster and smaller and smaller. So the implication is that you're going to have a personal computing for almost everybody on the planet. And if that were the case, then like you needed people to know how to use these computers. But like beyond that, not just computers as tools, like he saw an entirely new medium in the same way that like television was an entirely new medium. And, you know, people have argued about the, the pros and cons of television for the better part of the kind of decades. And in the same way that Mr. Rogers saw the television and he saw its potential as a way to educate children for the next like generation for the next set of challenges to come. Like Alan Kay saw the computer as a medium in which people needed to understand like how to author it. It's like mm -hmm. computer literacy, like computational literacy, not, not just computer literacy, but like computational literacy yeah. is uh, what he was going for. So that, that's where he's coming from. And he th also thought that like children were much more demanding as consumers. Mm. And so if they can make it work for kids, then everybody else should be fine. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think when we're talking about computational literacy, there's this vision that you can see throughout that is sort of related to our previous episode of end user programming, which is that not only is it, are you literate when you can read, when you can consume the medium, but also when you can write back to the medium. And so Smalltalk yeah. threaded throughout, there's this idea that it exposes a way to interact with it, to modify it as you use it. And there's actually no distinction between the mode of using and the mode of building. It's sort of debug mode is the only mode is, is one way that I've, I've heard it characterized. <laughs> <laughs> and so very different than how we, how we use computers today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say so. So where do we go from here? Like given their Alan Kay's vision for Smalltalk, where, where do we go from here? Yeah, so there, there are a couple of things that we should get out of the way. The first is the fact that I mentioned before that Smalltalk is, is known as one of the, the first object-oriented programming languages, and they sort of came about it through a very reasoned way. So they have a set of design principles that was outlined by another one of the Smalltalk creators, Dan Ingalls, which is that they wanted the system that Smalltalk provided to be 
entirely comprehensible by a single individual. And a key component of that was to make the system modular, meaning that rather than having the code and the system be this highly interlinked, intermeshed ball of, of twine, they wanted the system to be reasoned about in, in, a, in an easy way. And so the way that they came up with how to do that was that they were going to decompose the system that's running on your, on your computer into smaller components that they called objects. And an object would be a sort of self-contained thing that they thought of as a sort of mini computer. And it would have its own state and the, it, its own logic. And you would build a system by making objects send messages to each other. So you'd have an object and it wants another object to do something. And it would send it a message saying, hey, can you do this thing? And that object would either do it or, or maybe it doesn't know how to do it and it would uh, send an error message back. But it, the whole system was composed of this sort of these talkative objects that were requesting things of each other, and that's how you'd compose the system. Yeah, when I learned object orientation back in, I don't know, college or high school, I did not get any of this. Like, none of the, this, like, idea filtered through. Did you get any of this when you were, like, learning OOP programming? No, I mean, you know, if you look at the way that OOP is taught these days, or maybe actually for, for the last few decades, the main examples that you get are that there are objects and classes descend from each other and a dog is a you know yeah the dog is a kind of animal yeah. and it's completely unhelpful as an example <laughs> yeah and it teaches like the inheritance part it focuses on the inheritance rather than the message passing part yes. which i guess is is besides the point apparently yeah uh, and and so object oriented programming these days is very focused on inheritance and sort of the polymorphism aspect meaning that you'll have things yeah. that uh, you know you you override a method and you have like a general th interface that it exposes and, th and things like that and Alan Kay actually wrote in like one of his mailing list posts that the big idea about small talk is not objects. I'm sorry I long ago coined the term objects for this topic. He literally says that. He regrets this. And he says that the big idea is right. uh, that it's about messaging, that the key to making great and growable systems is how its modules communicate rather than what their you know, internal, uh, how you represent them in the code. And so that's, that's the big idea. You decompose the parts of your running system into things that can handle parts of their logic independently, and they talk to each other through sort of this well-defined you know, messaging layer. And that way, you can sort of partition parts of the functionality off, and then you also make it so that rather than having all parts of their system know the internal state of everything, they can sort of maintain abstraction. Because in Smalltalk, all of the state within an object is private, and you can only send messages to it, and maybe it will send back a representation of its state if you ask it, but you can't go into an object and modify things, uh, and so it kind of keeps it clean. Yeah, when I first read that that post and his description of object orientation, I was like, oh, that sounds like the actor model, yeah. and it turns out that Carl Hewitt was very much influenced by Smalltalk also. So for those of you that are Erlang and Elixir programmers, like the act actor model is actually inspired and takes away from the OOP, but I think they got the they got the vision right. I guess they got the message. Like they, yeah. they feel like <laughs> literally and metaphorically. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. Literally and metaphorically. And so I guess for those of you that don't know what actor models are, we'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. So so the actor model, I, I think, is closer to the original in, intention of object-oriented programming. I, I think the other thing that I came to realize when doing research for this podcast was the state of the art at the time was a lot of low-level programming. Like mm -hmm. people were like messing around with memory like people things in memory with pointers and yeah. i guess it's still how like system programming is done today yeah. in c and stuff like that and and like this it must have taken some amount of leaps there, there had to be multiple leaps for them to say okay we're going to take this low level stuff and we're going to construct an entire environment in which 
you don't really need to worry about these sort of things and you only do when things run too slow but mm-hmm. everything is is passing messages yeah. and i think it does they didn't have to go that far though because they did take inspiration from lisp i think definitely lisp is a language that's well known to not worry about computation in the practical sense of how they're going to be run on machines but like right. they're more worried about like what is the theoretical limits of computation as an abstract. Yeah, Alan, Alan so K. Smalltalk mentions that. Has that lineage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Alan K. mentions that you know, he appreciated the fact that in Lisp, there was this metacircular aspect of it, meaning that in Lisp, the code itself is uh, a data structure that uh, it can parse and modify, and, and that gives it a lot of special properties. And so in designing Smalltalk, he was thinking about how can we make that kind of recursive metaphor, and they came upon this recursive metaphor of objects, meaning that within your computer, you have these, you know, like I mentioned, these mini computers that are each running their own processes and they talk to each other. And it's interesting because maybe in, in later years after the, the internet came out, Alan Kay re, like repeatedly makes a reference to the fact that you should think of these objects as computers that are talking to each other, talking to each other over a very fast network. And so I, I'm curious whether they sort of made their original small talk environments with networks in mind or whether that was a metaphor that emerged later but all the same it's a very kind of interesting way of thinking about objects that we don't think about today yeah i was a little curious about that too and maybe like that's why erlang looks the way it does because like it, it kind of took this message passing to heart across like actual computers and they, they made it literal and all the attempts in the 90s of trying to hide remote code execution failed because it's just a completely different thing to try to like execute code on remote machines like you have all sorts of things that could fail and it's really hard to hide that in a abstraction that's in the guise of like a method call on the same computer yeah Yeah, and so i think well and then to your point about the the concept of small talk as a meta circular evaluation like it it, he also did make the connection to platonics like a plato's cave Mm -hmm. in which the ideas are are like classes are effectively ideas and these ideas in which you can make manifestations. Mm. And so that's the instantiations of these ideas. And the ideas themselves are manifestations of the idea idea. So it's the (laughs) object, it's the object class, right? right? Or or the class class. And then that the idea idea is a kind of a manifestation idea. So, so, so like, that's how he kind of got it to reference itself. And so the first time I happened upon that was in Ruby, where I was looking at their object model. I'm like, oh, this is weird. Like at the very top, it just kind of folds back in on itself. But I mean, Matt's didn't come up with that. Like he, he was taking it literally from the small talk tradition. Yeah, it's, it's a very powerful concept. And that's another aspect that I wanted to go into, which is the fact that you know, small talk is not just a language the way that we think about programming languages today. It is a language that is supposed to be coupled with a whole environment. And that environment is your, your computer, it's GUI, it's you know, the processor, all of those things are actually represented as Smalltalk objects. And so what it means is that if everything is a Smalltalk object, you can actually go and query the state of your your system and you can interact with your keyboard as though it's an object. You can interact with your screen as though it's an object that has a you know render method or, or, or a draw uh, response to a draw message. And so what it means is that you can actually go and change parts of your environment that Today, actually, we would think of as being part of your operating system. There are parts that you can't go into because they are uh, sort of special in some sense, separate from your own programming logic. But in Smalltalk, 
everything is an object. Everything is exposed as an object. And so you can interact with them just as you would any other objects that live within your own program, so to speak. Yeah, and this is kind of hard to get a grasp on unless you've watched some demos or tried it yourself. But it's it's just literally, I guess it's akin to that Steve Jobs quote about like that thing that changed his life was that when he looked at everything around him, he realized that somebody had to design and make it. And so if you're like, those people are not that special, then that means that I can change the things that are around me. Like it's, it's kind of a similar attitude to, to small talk. Like, like I don't like the way that the window is, I don't know, has rounded borders Mm -hmm. on my operating system. So I can go and change it because like I am part of this, like I have as much power as the designers of the system. And, and I think that's, that's kind of what what you get when you're inside of the small talk programming environment. That also means that when you're writing your program, you get, you're able to make tools that you normally wouldn't think of being within your reach, such as like writing debuggers or writing mm-hmm. IDEs or collecting statistics about your code and all when it's running, like yeah. you can, you can make graphs of like how many objects are created or like why garbage collecting is taking so long or yeah, like any number of things like that, 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 you'd want to know about your system yourself. Yeah. I think the first time I saw something, an idea like that was in Eve, which is a experimental programming language environment by Chris Granger. And the way they achieved it there was with a data log system where like every, everything in the system is a fact in a database. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked about this before, where if you want to send an email, it's a fact, like you write a fact in a database and the, the underlying system will send that email for you. And so your code is also a fact. So that means that you can write queries to query your code to see like what the heck it's doing or like how all the pieces are connected together. So if there's like one, like you have a piece of data on a page, you're like, why is this wrong? You can trace its lineage as everything that have touched it since it came into the system. And in Smalltalk, it's the same thing. Like when you, when you have everything as an object and everything is inspectable, then you can do stuff like that. And it's extraordinarily powerful. It makes you feel like you're in the system and you can touch everything that you see. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's, it's something that, you know, I highly encourage uh, our audience to look at some of the demos that we're going to put in the show notes where you can see the, the user modifying the system in place, adding behavior that wasn't there before in ways that honestly today we don't have like, if you wanted to build a, a customized debugger for your program that, let's say, doesn't step through the code at the level of abstraction of lines, but instead operates on some higher level concept, uh, like you wanted to write a web server and write a you know web server debugger that instead allows you yeah. to inspect you know the the every, every request, request and response that, that goes yeah. Right. So you could build that in Smalltalk. When right now, if you ask me like, hey, I have a web server and I need to debug it at this kind of domain specific level. I wouldn't be able to tell you how to build a debugger for that. It seems like we've sort of regressed in that sense because our tools don't expose themselves the way that the, the small talk was designed to. Yeah, one of the interesting things in one of the talks that we'll post in the show notes is that you can build debuggers for your DSLs. And so it's in the it's in the level of abstraction where your users would be interacting with. Mm-hmm. And so that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so the the other aspect of small talk that I wanted to go into is the fact that they designed this with the GUI in mind, and that every component that is accessible to the user should be able to present itself in a meaningful way for observation and manipulation. And so by that, they mean that you can have an object render itself in a variety of ways, whether that's simply displaying its own state or its own code, rather, or if it makes sense to, to expose a visual interface with menus and pictures and things like that. And that is seems 
like something that we take for granted today. But if you look at the contemporary computing environments that were around when they were making Smalltalk, this was a completely revolutionary idea. And I think it led to a lot of the the innovations that eventually were were taken by you know Steve Jobs and his tour of, of Park and and then you know implemented in the Mac and things like that. But but you know I think Smalltalk and the the environment that it ran on was sort of the pioneer of all those things. Uh, yeah, I mean, this also ties back to our user programming episode where we talk about embodiment, because one of the things that you want is for these abstract concepts to make concrete, at least like you should be able to see them. Because a lot of times, like the the way that our programming languages and environments are, even with an IDE, you, you just feel like like it, you have to play program or you have to play the computer uh, in your head. Yeah. And and in order to see, you have to play the computer in your head in order to see what the computer is doing. And at best, if you have a debugger built into your IDE, you just have to step through it. And if you're a little bit past the point, then you can't actually rewind and, and like inspect. So you have to like restart the entire thing all over again. Yeah. And so I think with, with Smalltalk, like everything is already in running because like with a debugger, it's kind of like, it's a shadow of what has gone on before. And it's like a tape that you can only run forward yeah. and if you miss the critical part then you have to rewind the entire thing and go through it again whereas i get the sense that with small talk it, it's not like that it's more like like editing like debugging production de debugging production live right. is effectively what it is and so like you can just kind of interact and play with the state of your program live while it's running and so if something doesn't work you don't restart the entire process from the beginning you just like re undo it and redo it or like write the state back to where it was and inspect like what its what its behavior is. Yeah, totally. And and that relates to the fact that in Smalltalk, typically you save your entire program, including its uh, source code and all of the running state as a Smalltalk image. And so we can kind of think about it today as maybe like a, a virtual machine snapshot or something like that. Yeah, I, f I found that to be kind of weird when I first heard about it, but yeah. I, I guess it makes sense. Is the image like a database or is it just like a... I guess it's just like a serialized version of all of the objects and their state. And so from that, yeah. you can inflate it back into exactly how it was. Yeah, which, which yeah. is kind of, kind of trippy because it means that you can sort of snapshot your program as it's running and send it to your friend and they can open it and sort of help you debug exactly from where you were and, and see exactly what you were seeing. So yeah, it seems it seems oh, Yeah, I wonder if that also practically happened because I, I know in reading some of the later parts of uh, why didn't Smalltalk take over the world, which we'll get to. One of the issues was there was no standard for Smalltalk outside of like the core, and so when you wanted to send objects to each other, like it didn't seem like it actually worked that well. Mm -hmm. And so supposedly there was a way to take like an object from outside the system and then like write basically like a. Com interpreter for it or like something to make it compatible with your own object system yeah. but i guess in practice it didn't actually work out that way and uh, yeah i do wonder because like i guess uh, once you see like the inspiration for this stuff like i once again saw this sort of thing from eve yeah. where like the entire state of the application is a database so you can just send it over to somebody else and they can just debug it if, if that's the case because it's got the reflexive properties and so that seems really powerful and i guess i don't know why we got rid of it maybe in <laughs> name of security or you know, like I can see that being a security issue yeah. or, or like, it's just, it's hard to make money on things that are really flexible. Maybe. Yeah. I don't no. know. We'll, we'll talk about this later also. Yeah. So yeah, we should definitely go into all of that. And, and it's, we should caveat this by saying that people looking back on small talk, do have some, a lot of valid points about 
why it was really ahead of its time. And in fact, it's sort of ahead of where we are today. But yeah, we we should like be aware of the fact that it was very much a you know research programming environment that had many different variants. So there wasn't a single small talk as such. There were multiple versions of small talk. And then as it got commercialized, it got commercialized by different vendors into their own sort of fragmented versions of small talk. And, and yeah, so, so it was very much visionary, but I think it had its own set of, set of flaws. And, and so we should be aware of the fact that it did, unfortunately, if you look at it in terms of adoption and usage, it ended up failing. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that it was a failure. I think it ended up being uh, very, very influential in, in a lot of the things we see today from anything from day-to-day programming, but also, you know, you can see its influence in things like Eve in Dynamic Land, which we discussed last episode and in yeah. so many other projects as well. Yeah, I mean, maybe you'll find a revival because I guess before Closure, I would have said the same thing about Lisp, right? Yeah. But like Closure warmed its way through things. I mean, like Rich Hickey was very practical about it. He's like, we got to target the JVM. Otherwise, like nobody's going to use it. Right. So yeah, yeah. So so yeah. And then so I guess going back to kind of the the vision or of OOP or like the things that are intrinsic to Smalltalk that were kind of different than what we were taught as OOP, are, are there other things that came to mind that, that we missed so far? No, I mean, I think that's the main thing that I got was was the message passing model, as well as the fact that, you know, you see this a little bit in languages like Ruby, where you can modify the classes that come with the standard library. So you can make a, you know, a method called is palindrome and attach it to the string class in Ruby. And now all strings everywhere now can report to you whether they're a palindrome or not. And, and so... It seems kind of like a dangerous, crazy concept, but it's it's how things were done in, in small talk like all the time. So I think I was a little bit surprised about that. Um, but yeah, the monkey patching, you know, so the monkey patching, and just like I mean, yeah. I wonder. It's like it's such a flexible environment, but you know, when when you actually put it in front of real people, like the day to day person, I wonder how that translates. Because maybe I'm I've become yeah. sort of cynical and like distrustful of the user, and it's very clear that like you know. The, the folks at Park were very much like believed in the potential of, of humans and their creative yeah. capacity. But yeah, I mm-hmm. wonder, you know, which which view of of humanity is 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 true. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure because like yeah, like I my my first foray into being a, like interested in languages came with Ruby. Like uh, Ruby was the gateway drug to like looking at everything else. And, it seems like with all the flexibility and monkey patching, you would get some like really obscene code. But I don't know, for some reason, culturally, a lot of the Ruby libraries are pretty great in their user interface. Maybe like underneath it's a mess, but it seems like at least like the people that write libraries for Ruby seem to have a real sense of what a programmer affordance should be like. Yeah. And they paid a lot of attention to that. So when you're using it, it never really feels terrible. So I don't know. But then again, like... I've I've worked with people that wrote terrible Ruby code, so like just because the tools are there um, doesn't mean anything. I, I think I, I read one of the papers by Alan Kay called "The Early History of Small Talk," which we'll link in the show notes. He says, you know, like you gotta be careful that like just provide. You think that providing the tools will provide like interesting tools will uh, provide interesting thoughts. And that's not the case. Like the music is not in the piano and it's possible to graduate Juilliard without finding or feeling it. I was like, ouch, ouch, ouch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it, but it is true. Like you do like beyond the tools, you do have to care about it in, in order for it to manifest itself. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting that the, the way in which they developed small talk. So in 
Dan Engel's Design Principles essay, basically he goes into their development model in which you, they started with the end in mind, which is, again, this Dynabook tablet that you, you know, children are able to use as their personal computer in their personal computing environment. And they sort of worked backwards from there, and they were like, well, what would computing have to look like in order for that to happen? And then they were like, well, you know, we need to have you know, graphics and graphical user interfaces, and we need to have a programming language that worked in this way so that they could, you know, children could reason about it. And, and then from there, there was actually, in the early history of Smalltalk, Alan Kay goes into a lot of the engineering about how they optimized things and represented objects in memory and things like that so that they could pull all of this off on what was very early hardware. And so, yeah, it, it was a very principle-oriented way of development, which we don't really see anymore where you start with the vision of the future and then you make the things happen. You don't see too many organizations working like that anymore, and I think that was part of the magic of, of Xerox Park that people are always referring to. Do you mean like programming languages aren't designed that way or just like any software that's being written? Yeah, I mean, I'd say any software that's, that's being written um, mm. these days is not, is not like, hey, I think that I have this thesis about you know, how the world should look like and you know, we're going to have to do all of these, these feats in order to pull it off. We kind of work yeah. instead from, well, here's what we can do, and there's sort of this immediate need, and we're going to sort of take one step forward and make it happen. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, I think part of it is just this uh, philosophy that swings back and forth. I mean, the, I think Peter Thiel does talk about this a little bit, where, well, if you're, uh, he, he has a quadrant between like certain, certainty and uncertainty, optimistic and pessimistic, and in one of the quadrants, which I can't remember which, like it's more conducive to planning. I guess it's like certainty and you're an optimist, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're certain about like how the world is going to go and you're like optimistic about the, the world in general, then you would like plan for a particular outcome. But then like when the world becomes more uncertain and you're more, is still an optimist about it, then you're going to still try to do stuff, but you're going to do things more iteratively because you can't really plan for what's going on. And I, you see this attitude pervade through startup wisdom, mm -hmm. like the, the standard startup advice is to shoot first and aim later um, <laughs> and you know iteration speed uh, above everything else and a lot of it is just on the basic assumption that the world is less knowable than it used to be because it's more complex mm -hmm. and so you won't actually know and you can't predict and so the only way to know is to throw something out there and interact with the world and yeah. it's not wrong yeah. it's just kind of more like experimental physics <laughs> the attitude of experimental physics rather than theoretical physics right. and we've kind of and i think what you're saying is just that we've swung too far in the experimental physics side of things and not enough people are kind of taking large bets on the theoretical side of things right yeah and and you know i think that the the mode of development that we have today that we you know, that you just described has resulted in incredible value for the world and you know more software is being created today than ever before uh, definitely than than was ever created at park and so not to discount that but it's just such a foreign way of thinking that was probably probably peculiar to that time peculiar to the culture of of park and and its sort of research roots but it's just something very foreign from what you you know read about today about how you're going to develop software yeah, it's less common now, but there are pockets in here here and there. I mean, like, if you look at Brett Victor, who is kind of the, what's the word? Ingenue? No, the spiritual successor to Alan Kay, yeah. like Dynamic Land. He's thought deeply about, like, what this sort of stuff means to, to him. And like, he, he doesn't care about programming. He thinks he cares more about, like, systematic thinking yeah. and stuff like that. And so he's kind of taken on that mantle. The people at Darklang, like, they're mm -hmm. inventing an entire language and also programming environment for deployment on the web. They seem to be 
more thoughtful about the attack that they're taking as well. Although like, I, I don't know a lot of the details. It's just an impression given the, the things that they put out. Right. Um, yeah. So I think there are pockets here and there, but yeah. yeah, for the most part, I think people just throw it out there and see, see what happens. Yeah. 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 I mean, so actually I throw it back to you. What were there other aspects of, of small talk that you found surprising or that you didn't know? Well, I'm glad you asked. Ria. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that, was surprising when I was doing research for this podcast was the idea that the objects are meant to be places in which you work out the high level interactions between the things that are operating in your domain. So like people talk about like writing stuff as a DSL so that you can operate at the level of abstraction for your problem. Mm -hmm. And I've found that in practice, people have a really difficult time doing this because like when you're, when you're, programming, it seems like most everybody's first goal is just to get it to work first, regardless of how it's put together. Yeah. And if you don't ever have to like revisit it, then like it never actually gets abstracted out to anything. <laughs> it's just left there for like the next dude to find. And then when the next dude finds it, he has to like dude or gal, I guess, or, and then, you know, like a lot of it is stepping through, trying to figure out like what is going on. And then their job is to like add a layer of indirection for the next guy to find, like right. next person to find. So, so. So I don't know in practice whether that kind of panned out or not. I think the other thing that was interesting was the idea that objects, the methods for the objects are supposed to be goals, which surprised me in for them to be described that way because it's goals in the relation, like the like logic programming sense. sense or, yeah, yeah, like the declarative logic programming sense because like the design rule of thumb for object-oriented programming that I've always heard was that you have to design methods that make it seem like you're requesting the object to do something for you. So you're like delegating to them. Yeah. But I think the intention was always that it's, it's a goal, like in, in a relational sense, um, like a logic programming sense. And so the, that you're able to make these things work together mm. so that you declaratively. And that I think was missing in a lot of the design aspect. Yeah. Um, and then actually, so that, that reminds sorry, me, go. you know, in, in the last episode of dynamic land, Part of the dynamic land design, the design of real talk, is they have these this concept called I think wishes, where you can wish oh, the yeah, world yeah, yeah. to be in a certain state. And I right. wonder if it sort of harkens back to this, or at least it seems familiar to me when you say goals. Yeah, yeah, I I, I do wonder. <laughs> yeah, I do wonder if there's some relation there. I wouldn't be surprised since like a lot of the more detailed essays I found a about Alan Kay and the things that he wrote came from Brett Victor's references that he kept around. Yeah. So in, in his own research years ago. And then I was going to say the last part that hit me was less to do with the object oriented uh, programming language itself, but kind of the whole goal, which was how to empower end user programming. Mm -hmm. And so Alan Kay has a story about how he tried to teach small talk to 20 like non-programmer adults when they were at park and they were able to get through the initial material faster than the children. And just as it looks like they were going to have overwhelming success, they started to crash on problems that didn't seem like they were too much harder to Alan Kay. Mm -hmm. 
And like one of it was just like build out a Rolodex, like Rolodex database sort of thing. And so that night he went back and he wrote it out himself. The next day he went and showed them all how to do it. And then still none of them were able to do it by themselves. So he's like, okay, sit back. And he tried to figure out like why he counted the number of non-obvious ideas in this program and he counted 17. Hmm. And so he was like, oh, you know, like it's, it's not enough to teach people the the equivalent of what numbers or like letters or words or paragraph are in order to achieve literacy and reading. Like you actually have to get them familiar with literature because it's the literature that renders the ideas, right? Mm. Because like it, it, some of the non-obvious ideas were like the concept of an arch in a building. Like it's, yeah. it's hard to discover if you don't know them already. And I guess this is what the gang of four tries to capture in design patterns. Yeah. And, and like I said, in a previous episode, like when you first read it as a novice, you're like, I kind of get what they're doing, like how it's put together, but I don't know what to use it for or like when to use it. Right. It's not until like you've seen those things, you're like, oh, okay. And I, I guess it's the same with monads and that's why you get like those <laughs> monads are a burrito sort of thing. Right. But anyways, to, to the point that like there are these like patterns and like it's, it's the literature that renders ideas. And so it's the organization of ideas that start to dominate your ability to have new ideas. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the mere language abilities. And so that's when they started to try to teach design. When I read this, I was just like, why did this not filter through to like all the rest of the universities? Like yeah. where was Alan Kay putting his effort? Because I did not get any of that in my <laughs> university training and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, even as a professional uh, software developer, I don't think I've received too much training in how to design, how to, how to design systems or how to break down a problem so that you can model it in software. And, and so I've learned yeah, a like, lot of specific like, nitty gritty things, but never that. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of hard to communicate too. Like we don't have the equivalent of like classics. Like the only thing I can remotely think of as a classic is maybe like the quake source code. Like people want to keep that stuff around and like review like things like that, yeah. but like we don't have, so like people can see how like the, what is it? The square root was computed yeah, fast inverse square um, root, yeah. and right, right. The fast inverse square root or like BSP trees, but like we don't really have the equivalent of like a body of literature of ideas because most of that stuff is written in blog posts outside of the computing medium itself. Mm -hmm. And so when I read that, I was like, oh, like it would be really great if libraries were explorable in the same way that you can debug your own programs, like without like having to pull it all in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, people sort of reference this idea of reading great code bases and things, but the way that we do it now is maybe you go to GitHub and you uh, click around on the source code of, of some project that you're familiar with and sort of try to absorb through osmosis, like, oh, okay, this is an interesting concept or something like that. But I imagine that it's a much more different experience in Smalltalk because you're not just looking at this sort of rendered dead source code. You actually get to look at the behavior of the system and say, okay, like, let me inspect how this is running and maybe change it a little bit and see how it changes the outcome. And so uh, that seems like a much better way to get exposed to great great programming ideas by actually seeing them work and, and, and watching how it runs. Yeah. And so like, I, I feel like I've gotten my experience mostly by designing projects from the ground up. And I remember like early on when trying to write my own games, like it could teach me all the kind of the low level stuff, but I had no idea how to put all the stuff together. Like yeah. I didn't know how it was supposed to hang together architecturally. And then when I started building like web projects, like having a little bit of structure in place help like like rails but when you end when you start building things outside of the crud app like you, you have to do some work to think about like what 
how should this thing hang together? And I think it's, for me at least, it's only through the process of like making these decisions and seeing what the outcomes are that I've started to build up an instinct for like what, what might work, what might not. And I wish it was a little different way to obtain that knowledge. And I don't know, may, maybe there's no other way or maybe like reading great literature would have helped that instinct. Yeah. And so if it works in reading and writing, I would think that it would work in programming. So that, anyways, that, that was a part that really jumped out at me as well. Very cool. And now I feel deficient in my programming skill. <laughs> now, I, I also feel completely illiterate in some sense, right? Like you shouldn't consider like being able to read bo like pill warnings on a bottle literacy, right. right? Like that, that's not like a deep idea that will help you <laughs> have a deeper appreciation of the world. And so in that sense, I, I mean, like it's maybe I'm still like illiterate, illiterate when it comes to computational ideas and yeah, if, we're, know, if we're illiterate then what's everyone else right yeah okay cool yeah lots lots of things to to unpack there but i you know i i do want to transition into just the mm -hmm. the question of has the vision been achieved like how did the the vision go and, and there's some interesting write-ups from people who were involved at the time about how you know the commercial adoption of small talk and and more specifically you know spoiler alert by this time you've probably figured out why Smalltalk didn't win. It, it, we're not all using Smalltalk right now, and so there are a lot of interesting reasons. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so has the vision been achieved? Are you asking yeah, me yeah, what I'll, I think? I'll ask you, yeah. What do you think? Mm. Well, so I guess there's a couple. In terms of, like, improving the children at the time and making them into adults that are fluent in computing to be able to help solve the world's problems. I don't, I don't know. I feel like if it has, it's re reached a minor number of children who are now adults. Mm. I mean, there, there is a guy, Steve Krauss, who's running the future of coding podcast. And he talks about how he went through a program learning the logo programming language, which was created by Seymour Papert, who was an influencer, in, in, not an influencer, <laughs> an influence. Yeah. An influence on Alan Kay and his thinking for like teaching children, like computer literacy. And, you know, it worked for him. Like he mm. thought he was bad at math. Like Steve Krause thought he was bad at math growing up. And like after the program, he felt really confident about like, using computers to help him understand the world. And so I think if it worked, it worked on a minor number of children because I don't get the sense that most children are like that. Yeah. Like most children can use computers today, but they're sort of in a read-only sense though, right? Yeah, yeah, in a read-only sense. Like they can work it, but I don't see them using it to model the world. Like unless they're like programmers mm -hmm. themselves or they they're using spreadsheets like I, I really don't or like playing with raspberry pies or something like that like yeah. I, I don't really see it so in that sense i don't think so yeah. but maybe the minority that did it they went on to be very influential so maybe I, that i'll give that a maybe yeah yeah yeah, yeah. In, in terms of oop i would say that the java line of oop has not been a success i think like <laughs> programming has has been even more complicated with the problems that object orientation has introduced. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that Alan Kay extols as virtues in object orientation, it, it turned out not to be the case. Like multiple inheritance, I think most people understand to be like problematic nowadays. Yeah. I think where there is success is actually in Erlang, the, in the yeah, actor model. Yeah. I think that's where, where like the mantle of OOP should should be considered a success. And so that is probably where it is. It's successful in in the sense that at least it gave a way for people to organize their code. Because I can imagine that before OOP, it was mostly procedural programming. 
and before that it was go to so it it could if it was a mess if it's a mess now it probably was even more of a mess before yeah. and i think people weren't really ready to embrace functional for some of its benefits that people are see, just only seeing now i think mm -hmm. in the mainstream programming i think so in that sense yeah yeah so so where I, so my last point is where it did win is that it's rich full of deep ideas that people are still mining today right. for new programming systems and it was far ahead enough that decades later we're still looking at it to see what we missed because like when steve jobs came to it and like took GUIs, which were originally meant as a programming environment but used it for like user land yeah. and he saw like object orientation and you know created languages like i guess objective c mm -hmm. is a successor to that kind of object orientation tradition but but like it, it took it didn't focus on the message passing part as far as I know. I less guess. so. I don't know. It, like it the, still has a concept of messages, so. though. But yeah. Right, 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 right. But like all, all the focus on OOP has been on the message pass inheritance. Yeah. And so, so I don't know. It's it's a mixed bag. But but when it comes to influence, I, I think it's definitely very successful. Right? <laughs> so that that's that's my like three long bullet points. I, <laughs> no, I, I like it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that as a sort of a concept, as a vision of how computing could be, it played a big role in uh shaping you know the languages that we have today the environments that we have today you see a little bit of its influence in in many many languages ruby objective c even swift carries this on as a successor to objective c which is uh, sort of descended from small talk in a way so yeah i mean mm -hmm. i think it, it it has spread some of its ideas in a diluted way and you know unfortunately it small talk itself did not find success in the marketplace it seemed mm -hmm. like there was a time in the 90s where it there was a potential because before Java came out, there weren't too many ways to build that kind of rich interface, rich GUI interfaces using you know a powerful language. And so there was a time when it seemed like many enterprises were transitioning away from sort of the DOS terminal applications toward GUI interfaces and Smalltalk sort of positioned themselves as the solution to that. But then... Yeah, as soon as Java came out, and then later, as soon as the web sort of came out, the sort of demand dried up. And so, basically, all the things that Smalltalk was good for at the surface, which was building GUIs, got sort of eaten up by these other more, I guess, flashy solutions. And then it yeah. turns out that most of the people just associated Smalltalk with GUIs. And so, that once the, that problem was solved, they sort of abandoned all the rest of the stuff about end-user programming and empowerment and this and that. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Like, this, there's a like a a blog post about why Smalltalk failed, which is where we're getting this from. But I thought it was interesting in how some of the stuff was interconnected. Like, Smalltalk, as you mentioned earlier, was a research like programming language and programming environment. And so, the when you read Alan Kay's stuff, he makes it seem like it's just ready. Like yeah. they did a lot of the work, and not saying they didn't, right? Like they had to invent a lot of that stuff. But like, in order to take what they've already invented and then also push it to uh, production environments, there's still some ways to go. And so apparently the companies that um, wanted to take Smalltalk into the marketplace, they felt like they still needed large engineering teams to take it into production. And because of that fundamental, I guess, uh, need mm -hmm. to, to do that, then they felt like they needed a lot of money. Were they going to get a lot of money? Well, they need to go sell to enterprise. Yeah. And the thing that they ended up uh, figuring out, presumably by talking to customers, is that enterprise, they didn't really care about like all the like reflection or like uh, 
end user programming sort of stuff. They just wanted, like you said, to turn a thin client into a fat client with the GUI yeah. because that was what was trendy at the time. And and so because the small talk guys were so focused on that part that they got blindsided by the rise of the web and Java and some microsystem being the party company that it, they were, they put a lot of marketing muscle behind Java. Like for those of you that didn't grow up in the nineties, like there was a lot, like I don't think there's been any programming language then or since that had so much marketing yeah, like, I, prowess behind it. I remember it. being a kid and uh, my dad would go to conferences and he would bring back like so much like Java swag and our house was full of it. And I loved it as a kid, but yeah, like thinking back on it, they were going all all out on promoting that language. We, actually, nobody yeah. promotes programming languages that way. I wish I would get some programming language swag, but yeah, man, what a time it was. <laughs> yeah, and so they, they pushed it and pushed it hard. And it was a combination of being, well, at least for Java, being at the right place at the right time and Smalltalk being so focused on doing the conversion that they got blindsided by that and they have just haven't recovered since. And so I think that's one thing. Yeah. And the other interesting thing that I read was that the, well, so Smalltalk has its philosophical origins from Lisp. Like they are the type of programmers that care more about representing computation and exploring the limits of computation rather than being hemmed in by what computers can actually do today. Mm -hmm. And so they, like you said, work backwards and then any part that was actually slow, then they would kind of go down into the microcode and optimize that. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to evolve the language, but with by building the language and then putting applications on it and then seeing how that was or wasn't being served by the underlying language and then improving the language and having that virtual loop. Yeah. But it wasn't that, that wasn't the only virtual loop that they, virtuous loop that they wanted. They wanted that same virtuous loop with the hardware, right? They wanted the language environment to inform hardware, which then would improve the language again. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what they wanted and so that's where the steve jobs like quoting alan k that like those who are serious about software would build their own hardware yeah. but like in that context it's actually like a it, it doesn't provide the spirit of the quote because like steve jobs just used it to sell more computers to say <laughs> we're vertically integrated so we're better right but in actuality like what alan k was talking about was that virtuous loop like he wanted that to be like an ongoing thing yeah. and so it, as evidence of that like what they did was they released small talk images to various like companies that wanted to license it and they hoped that these companies would build their own hardware to help support small talk yeah right? actually like a small instead, talk specific processors was was the hope right 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 and so like so like if you can imagine, like one of the things that uh, people rail against nowadays is for certain type of applications, like garbage collection, because you get pauses from garbage collecting all the objects and memory. So, so like things like I don't know what it is. Rust doesn't have a garbage collector. Mm -hmm. Like they just pre-compute everything ahead of time so that you don't need to at compile time, so you don't need to collect any garbage. And so I get the sense that like what Alan K wanted was like. How about you build some hardware that does garbage collection, say in a different thread or something like yeah. that, so that we won't get these GC pauses. Like that's what he wanted. But like these companies, obviously, to cut costs, they're just like, well, f it, we'll just build these on commodity hard, like build build our like uh, machines based on commodity hardware mm. to run Smalltalk. But as it turns out, like it was just too slow to do anything, and so half like some of them just pulled out as a result. And Alan Kay and them were like, oh, what are you guys doing? Yeah. Right? But they should have seen that coming. Like people are going to try to take the economical way out if they can get away with it mm. when it comes to entrepreneurship. Right. And so, so, so yeah, I mean like that, that was something kind of that jumped out about like why, why they failed in, in, in this particular area. It was a combination of circumstance, bad luck and kind of bad anticipation of what people would do. Yeah. And yeah, I'm really curious 
about this this aspect of whether small talk was was networked uh, and and maybe we'll look it up and, and we, uh, put something mm. in the show notes but well the the Oppo computers were networked yeah yeah I, I i mean specifically i'm i'm trying to figure out like the web later came and ate everybody's lunch right like even java now yeah. is, is no longer yeah, used yeah, yeah. for for at least front end software but for the most right. part and so you know i think that this kind of environment with a very fat client and you know it, its dependence on the hardware the the whole thing got flipped where now the web was a sort of thin client and you can make no assumption about the hardware on which your software would be delivered because it's delivered over the network and it's just going to run and so now everything yeah. is virtualized mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so, yeah, like computing, the whole computing model actually went in a very, very different direction. And, and so I think that sort of th- threw a wrench in the work. Did it flip back? Because I feel like the thin, thick client kind of swings back and forth every I mean, I guess like so. mobile apps then sw- flip to oh, thick yeah, clients. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, right. Yeah, maybe it'll, the pendulum will swing back. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess the blockchain. The blockchain, blockchain is the new server. <laughs> yeah, now now everything's a thin client over the sort of you know global computer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's just so much like fashion, marketing, pop culture that you know all all of these big ideas really didn't like hold up against the messiness of reality, which is mm, you know yeah. you can think about it as unfortunate. You can think about it as you know that's actually. You know that's competition and and capitalism and and whatever your thoughts are on that, but like, no, I mean you you have to survive in the marketplace. Yeah. Like unless you're really good at writing grants, I mean, yeah. like you have to survive in the marketplace somehow. I mean, even good ideas. I mean, yeah, like you, like the the whole reason we have an economic engine of capitalism is because like it makes people do stuff that is for the benefit of other people, mm-hmm. right? For, to, to make money at least. Like, yeah. I'm not saying people are not self interested, but the the result is that you get stuff that other people can use but like it has to have a very certain shape to fit fit the like economic model of of our, our world otherwise the, the idea would only exist in academia or in people's minds or maybe in art or in in fields in which like the the economic unit economics doesn't really figure into mm-hmm. it and you know it may not usually those sort of things don't pervade nearly as widely or, or as, as well. Yeah. It depends. Obviously, there are a lot of exceptions. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think that there's, there's definitely a disconnect between the, the culture of the people making small talk and then the culture of the world at large. And actually, that touches mm-hmm. upon you know, what we talked about. And sometimes necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. true, right? Like, you don't get, you know, really, really far-thinking ideas Largely, without uh, yeah. sort of being disconnected from the day-to-day realities. And and actually that that connects to what we discussed last episode where you know we discussed dynamic land and them keeping mm-hmm. their you know dynamic land under wraps w- with very very little press very very little sort of over, oversight into how it works and yeah. they did that as a deliberate design decision because they don't want what happened to small talk to happen to them where you know, people come in before it's ready, before they have a fully formed sort of vision of how they're going to execute on this and have the, the bits and pieces sort of parceled out and bastardized the way that, you know, Smalltalk introduced OOP and then like, yeah. you know, Java just stole OOP and made it into some whole other thing. And so, yeah, it's yeah. like, it's kind of an interesting callback to, to that. Yeah, when you read like Alan Case writing on the early history of Smalltalk, the bitterness really comes through. Like it's, it's, like you, you feel that he had these other goals. Like Brett Victor has called him the, the greatest philosopher of our time. It's just nobody knows him for that. They just think of him as this OOP guy. Yeah. And and I think it's it's partially that where I think he had a vision for not just small talk, but like he's he cares about like how to make 
compute, yeah, like computing literacy or like systems thinking, like one of the four or five, whatever the R's are, yeah. reading, writing, arithmetic. Yeah, left the fourth R, yeah. right? And but like, like it's and so small talk may not like he wanted to like restart like that project that using small talks like small talks like close but it's not it's not actually quite there like it wasn't exactly what he wanted and but he saw that like those things have pervaded out in a bastardized form to it's yeah i don't know what's the best idea you've ever had tree like and then how would you feel if like you got the the yeah like a bastard version of it out there and people like thought that i don't know like you you invented basketball but everybody feels like it's about the shorts or the shoes right well i mean you know, I, I, I would feel a little bit sad, but at the same time, this is a pattern that I've seen happen over and over again. And and especially with these big ideas about computing and self-expression and things like that, like people start with these huge, huge ideas, but I think that they are so different. They're, the diff is so much between where society is now and what some of these people are thinking about that the most that can be absorbed at one time is like one unit, one meme from that, that yeah. whole big vision. And so we're just going to take like, yeah. one small step at a time. And that, like, you kind of just have to accept that, you know, that's that's success, I guess. Like, that's my take on this. Yeah, I mean, I, in, the, in the episode on Dynamic Land, like, you quipped that, you know, like, creators should be okay with, like, people taking things and making it their own when it's out in the world. On one hand, I do agree with that, you know, like, it... Um, people will surprise you both good and bad, I guess. Yeah. Right. And so like they can find applications that you wouldn't have even thought of. But on the other hand, I do sympathize that if there's something that is so, it's not just like one or two steps removed from what people currently know, but like three or four, like y- you want people to get there at like the third or fourth step. Yeah. Right. And to be able to like fully utilize the ideas that you have, but it's just so hard for people to make even one leap, right? Like smart people, can make two leaps but like most people do not like make three or four hops from where they know unless they've been immersed in it for i don't know years and years right it takes it takes a while to come up with those ideas that we think of as obvious once we've accepted it but like those are the sort of things that you know you'd get burned at the stake for you know yeah definitely and so like you said it, it does take a little bit of time to kind of get there. And so that's why like people still go back to small talk to and lisp to like mine it for ideas because they, there was a couple leaps. Right. There. Yeah. And, and actually Alan K did an AMA on Reddit, I think back in 2016, yeah. I was reading uh, some of his comments today and somebody asked him, you know, everybody asked him about small talk, but like in response to one particular thread, he said, you know, small talk was a really huge deal back in the seventies, but you should really ask yourself, why do you even care about it today? And, and, and what I got out of that was basically like, Alan Kay is, is over it. He is like, there's something, there's a bigger fish. There's some bigger vision that he has today. And I'm very curious what it is, but like, you know, like we are all here, like, you know, a generation later inspired looking back at small talk and trying to make like little bits and pieces of it happen. And he's yeah. like onto the next thing. And I bet like, if we were to hear it, his vision of what the next thing is, we would also just like not understand like the, the depth of, of that thought that goes into that. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some version of this, like he, his current, research institution is called the viewpoints institute i believe and he's uh, one i think he needs a better graphic designer for his slides because they all look (laughs) terrible and i don't think they not just look terrible but they're too cluttered to convey like a single clear idea and so i think he has some problems communicating in that sense if they were a little bit clear one but i think two is that like the ideas that he has he finds difficult to express because we don't have words for them he's trying to find 
what they are. And I think one, one of the things that I got sense of uh, the reason why it's called the Viewpoints Institute was because he's trying to find tools and ways of thinking that can help us change our point of view to make a leap into new ideas. Mm-hmm. And so that if you're able to kind of break out of your local maxima to have different viewpoints, like he's often quoted as like a, a new or better viewpoint is worth 80 IQ points. Mm-hmm. And I, I interpret that to mean that if you have like better tools for thinking or like people recently, oh, what's his face? Linus Lee, I think, wrote a blog post about notational intelligence that, you know, the thinking tools that we have that made giant leaps in civilization are things like the Arabic numerals mm-hmm. um, is one, like, and like, uh, what's the other one? Other notation, math notations, and I guess reading and writing, yeah. like just being able to write stuff like those, those have made considerable leaps since civilization. And so I think what Alan Kay is trying to do is create a similar leap for civilization so that we can kind of get onto the next plane yeah. of, of thinking. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like exactly the kind of far reaching, you know, vision that I expect from Alan Kay and me being slightly cynical will imagine that somebody will carve off a piece of that and sell it as some kind of, you know, enterprise thing. We're supposed to be optimists on this podcast, but yeah, I mean, it's true. I, I think like just uh, commercializing it isn't necessarily a bad thing. I guess it depends on your viewpoint, yeah. but the, yeah, like we said, like in order for it to be pervasive and dem- democratized, like the unit economics has to work somehow. It has to be something you care about. Like you and I have worked in startups. We know yeah. just how hard it is to find things that like people want and are willing to pay for. And like, it has to solve their immediate problem. Yeah. And that's kind of a constraint. Like you can't solve people's problems that they're going to have. You need to solve people's right, problems right, today yeah. in a way that they understand. Yeah. Actually, so, I mean, you know, to pull it back to optimism, I think one thing yeah, that yeah. I found really interesting was that a lot of the software tools that we use that we think of as just sort of productivity software was inspired by these views of computation. And so one thing that, like, one example that comes to mind is actually Notion. And it, really early in the history of Notion, they yeah. they kind of paid homage to these early computing pioneers. Actually, the Notion blog still has, you know, mm-hmm. really great in-depth interviews with some of these, these folks from that time. But yeah. yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, we think of Notion as an interesting kind of document where you can embed all kinds of, you know, tables and, and interesting things but you know if you squint and you look at it it is sort of it's a dynamic medium that that people ju- just now are ready for like this idea that a document yeah. can be sort of living and can have its own state and, mm-hmm. and you can represent your ideas in different ways and so yeah i mean yeah. i think that it's not necessarily a bad thing that people sort of carve out the one thing that people are ready for and introduce it and and you know step by step we kind of get to this larger vision yeah yeah so so i think like, like we mentioned in an earlier episode that like the the intellectual lineage of small talk is not apparent unless you kind of know where, where to look or know, that you can recognize it and it's it's dispersed throughout so so yeah like and sometimes hiding in plain sight yeah yeah so i mean it's definitely cool i think you know in in researching small talk there are still small talk environments today that you can go and download and onto your own computer and try mm-hmm. and actually there are lots of new adaptations of the concepts of small talk that people are trying to bring to the web. So there are a few projects that I'll put in the show notes, like Lively and Caffeine and things, where people are now trying to bring this idea of an observable, on-the-fly, interactive environment to the web browser, which Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense because the web browser is also that kind of environment, and so making it so that you can sort of live program within your browser. And so, yeah, there are lots of, like, intellectual successors, spiritual successors to Smalltalk. There are also actual successors to Smalltalk that are trying to bring uh, Smalltalk itself into the modern era. 
and so it'll be interesting to watch and i encourage people to go check those out as well yeah yeah so if, if only to experience it but i guess the next thing best thing is to watch somebody demo it and know what you're looking at i guess hopefully somebody is narrating what you're looking yeah. at. yeah yeah cool i mean yeah i mean i i you know we usually ask ourselves like whether we're feeling optimistic about the the technologies that we're looking at in the future and i think that i feel like my summary of of, of small talk is that it it was definitely something that's hiding in plain sight like you said it's it's a huge influence and so i think it's it's to, to kind of recap i feel retro optimistic you know i like <laughs> looking back i'm like yeah their optimism was well placed i think that it was the right thing to have worked on and you know we're all better off for it and so yeah i, I think it's a, it's super cool yeah I, I researching small talk and stuff and even before that i was watching the brett victor stuff i, I realized that programmers we think of ourselves as a relatively young medium, and so we don't really examine history like at all. There's no such thing as like programming or computing history in university courses, and I think that's a little bit of a shame because like we have the bold ideas from when computing was first starting, and so back then they were just like, we don't know what we're doing, we don't know what computing is, and we don't know exactly how to comp program computers, so we'll just try all sorts of stuff. And so there's a lot of ideas there that I don't think a lot of us still know about, Like, and we reinvent the wheel over and over again, instead of like understanding, oh, okay, this thing rhymes, Like, how does this, how does this apply to the computing environment that I, I have today? And so, yeah, like I would encourage people to go look at it, and in terms of like how I feel, uh, about it I, I feel thankful that that small talk was was invented and and you know i'm optimistic that we'll still have plenty of ideas to extract from it before we really move on very cool and with that that has been our first retro future episode of the technium where we went into small Yay. Talk. Yeah. yes jazz hand yes so come back next week where we're going to be talking about another new idea in the edge of computing awesome yes subscribe hit that bell whatever it is and uh we will see you next week at the technium so this is will this is Shree. and signing off see y'all later bye-bye <laughs>